out the Lord's, Lord's Supper today. Sorry. I told her earlier that the kids were going down and a little absent-minded today. Apologize for that. Numbers chapter 15 this morning. Numbers chapter 15. In one sense, it's been kind of exciting to study through some of the narrative here in Numbers. Um, the rises and falls that come with considering the faithfulness of some and the faithlessness of others. We've seen the powerful work of God in showing Himself in, in the cloud of pillar and fire and then sending food and then the spies and their disbelief in God because of the Canaanite giants. And then if you just scan your eyes over to chapter 16, you see that the story there is about the earth opening up and swallowing the sons of Korah. And so we have another exciting story there. But, but if you just look at the, the headings here in chapter 15, it sounds like we move to the, this boring old section of Scripture that seems unimportant. We have in my Bible, the headings are the laws for Canaan, laws of the sojourner, Sabbath-breaking, punished. And so we move from all this exciting narrative. We're going to get to some more here in chapter 16. But, but why bother with chapter 15? I mean, what value does this chapter really have for us? Well, we know that all Scripture is inspired by God and, and that actually God and its immediate author, Moses, put this part of Scripture in this specific place. He placed it right uh, um, after a story of disbelief and right before a story about rebellion. And, and yet, why? Why include these laws here? We, we already had Leviticus. We've already read some, some laws and numbers. Why, why not keep going with the exciting narrative that is the, the, uh, the rises and falls of, of Israel throughout the wilderness? Well, let's see if we can discover the value and the purpose of this chapter and then see if we can apply it to ourselves. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of our text and then we'll cover the whole chapter. Follow along with me in your Bibles as I read verse 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where, are you, where you are to live, which I am giving you, then make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a freewill offering, or in your appointed times to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. The one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil. And you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one-fourth of a hin with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hin of wine as a soothing aroma to the Lord. When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, then you shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half a hin of oil. And you shall offer as a drink offering one-half of a hin of wine as an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each ox or for each ram or for each of the male lambs or the goats. According to the number that you prepare, so you shall do for every one according to their number. All who are native shall do these things in this manner. 
and presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. If an alien sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift it up as an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering. As the offering of the threshing floor, you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. Chapter 15 does have great value for us. And I hope they'll show you that from the text today. What we see in this passage is that those who desire to enjoy God's presence and blessing must live according to His expectations. This goes a little bit against what has been going on with Israel in the wilderness. And this is what God expects now of them when they enter into the land. He's expecting that they will be prosperous and that they will follow Him. And so He says, if, if you want to enjoy My presence and blessing, then you, I have certain expectations for you to follow. And so He he lists them out helpfully at this point in their journey to let them know that He's not done with them yet. That He's still going to continue to work in them and through them and, and particularly through their children. So, let's look first at God's expectations for native Jews in verses 1-13. through 13. God's expectations for native Jews. Here, He gives basic instructions on what to do with these offerings. Before, when they brought an offering, they were simply supposed to bring the offering. Now they need to add something to it. They need to add grain and drink. They need to add... Uh, there, there were other offerings where they would include some kind of grain or wheat to, to their offering. But here he's saying every time when you come into the land and you offer me a bull or a lamb or a goat, you need to add with it a certain amount of flour and also of, of wine. Let's first notice the goal of these offerings in verse 3. At the end of the verse it says, to make a soothing aroma to the Lord. So you bring this offering so that it is a soothing aroma to the Lord. The same phrase is used in verses 7, 10, 13, 14, and 24. When you bring your offering, the goal is that it is a soothing aroma to the Lord. Similar to the first offering in history, which is in Genesis chapter 4, where God had regard for Abel and his offering, but God did not have regard for Cain's offering. Abel's offering was, in a sense, soothing to God. It was acceptable to him. It was the right kind of offering that God expected, brought in the right way. And the fact is that Israel didn't have to guess what God wanted them to bring to him. If they, want, if they were going to please God, they simply needed to unfollow, uh, obey follow His instructions. The same fact is true for us as well. God is not trying to hide Himself. God is not trying to be deceptive about what He expects of us. He, he's clear about what He expects. Our problem with, uh, with, with following those expectations is that we don't quite see it or we don't want to see it. It's not that God has become or that God is unclear. He is clear. He doesn't want us to guess 
Our job is to find out, as Ephesians 5.10 says, find out what is pleasing to the Lord. So the goal of these offerings is that it is a soothing aroma, that God is pleased. That's the idea of that. The commands for the offering in this chapter are, are different from what we have already seen in Leviticus. So, in other words, God expands His expectation. In Leviticus, the, the expectation was that this law was given at Sinai. And, and notice the difference here. Verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land. So in Leviticus, he's talking more about, here's the expectations I have for you now at Sinai and going forward throughout the wilderness journey. But here in Numbers 15, he says, when you enter the land, here's the added expectation I have for you. It's not just to bring the meat. It's to add to it the flour and the wine. And the difference is that the people at that point will have received the promised land, right? When they enter the land, they will enjoy all the agriculture that's already there. It's already a land flowing with milk and honey. They've already spied it out to see that it is rich with agricultural resources. And so God is not doing anything spectacular or or, or amazing. He's not requiring anything beyond their ability. He's simply saying, you're going to have an abundance when you get into the land. So when you do, part of that belongs to me. And so there are two ideas that we can draw from this. First, God is faithful to His promise, His promises and He will give Israel the abundance that He promised. That is, with, that when they enter the land, God will have given them enough. It's not that they have less than enough now, but they will have an abundance there. They will be farmers in a land that will be rich with resources. second idea we can draw from this is that these offerings are, fil- are, are um, fulfilled in the promised land. These, these offerings now actually fill out the, uh, almost a whole meal that they're going to have with God. Remember, part of the reason to bring the offering was to have fellowship with God. Now, obviously, when you bring the burnt offering, that the whole thing's burnt up before God, and then the, the parts that didn't get burnt up were taken up outside the camp. But there are other offerings that were brought. There were fellowship offerings, which was that the offerer, the priest... And God, in a sense, by it being burned up, were participating in the offering, right? So now what he's saying, when you enter into the land, it's not just going to be meat that I share with you. You're going to share these things with me as well. You're going to share the meat and the grain and also the wine. It's like a whole meal that God is, is having with them, kind of filling out this um, relationship the method is given in verses 4 through 10, and he lists a number of offerings that are, are to be given, that are, are, are to be offered. He, he begins in verses 4 and 5 with just, um, he says there, when you present an offering, bring a grain offering, one tenth of an ephah of fine flour, and a hen of oil, and you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one fourth of a hen. So, uh, and what we should recognize here is. Um, that this was not an insignificant amount. It was uh, about two liters of flour. Realize liters probably more like fluid, but but two liters of flour, one liter of oil, and one liter of wine to be added to the meat that they already had to bring. And then as the animal gets bigger, the sacrifice gets bigger like a ram. It was even more than that. It was three liters of flour. With a bull, it was it was three liters of flour plus a liter of oil and a liter of wine. And so. The point is that the, the, 
The size of the offering determines the size of the supplemental offering, we could say. And, um, and this, this uh, might not be that big of a deal to us when we think about, you know, they, you know they're farmers. They have animals. So what's the big deal if they bring uh, an animal? But, but imagine how expensive that must have been for them. Um, how, how much money they could have made off of, for example, when they have to bring a bull. Um, one scholar says it would be like bringing your car to the church and seeing it go up in smoke. Right as an offering to the Lord. And so this is not an insignificant offering that they were giving on a regular basis and God is expecting it of him. But he's kind of filling it out. He's saying, when you get there, here's what I expect of you. So God's expectations for native Jews, uh, he had the ram, the bull, and then the oxen, ram, male goat, and goat in verses 11 through 13. God's expectations for native Jews. And then God's expectation for foreigners. That would be proselytes. People who come into the land and take on all of the the aspects of the Jewish religion. That is, the the Jewish faith, believing in God, and and the the foreigners, the men being circumcised and so on. What God's saying is, listen, I'm opening up the way to more than just you. This is not this world does not revolve around you Jews. Uh, uh, this world revolves around me. Is what God is saying, and so it's it's open to more than just Jews. And we're, we certainly, of all people, are thankful for that, since most of us, if not all of us here, are not Jews. In verses 14 through 16, he says the same requirements I have for you, I have for the foreigners. Same requirements for them as I have for the native Jew. That, that when they join in worship, that they need to follow the same expectations, the same statutes that I have for you. There's not going to be a separate set of rules for the foreigner as there is for the native Jew. And the reason for that is because in Genesis 12, God had made a promise. Abraham, by you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And so now he's opening up the way for more than just Jews to... Abraham himself was not even a Jew, right? I mean, we kind of think of him as the father of Jews, but but he himself was actually called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. In verses 17 through 21, God adds this extra expectation, which is, again, this is something that's added on to the native Jew as well as to the foreigner, but it is that they need to give the first lump of dough to him. The first lump of dough belongs to the Lord. So here we have another amendment from Leviticus before Israel was required to give of their firstborn son, right, or make an exchange so that you had the, the Levite that would replace him. But, but the firstborn son, the firstborn of the animals were supposed to be given to God, the firstborn of their crops. And now God's saying, now I want the first of your dough. Whenever you make a lump of dough, the first lump of that, take, take a chunk out of there and it belongs to me. This was an expectation for both the proselyte and the native Jew. In verses 22 through 29, he gives instructions for unintentional sins, and then he moves on to intentional or high-handed sins. And he breaks this down into two ways. Verses 22 through 26, he, he gives instructions for unintentional sins for the whole congregation. What is the congregation of Israel supposed to do? In Leviticus, the responsibility was that they would bring a bull. A bull would be sufficient for the whole congregation to atone for their sins. But God's saying here, 
um, when you enter the promised land, you need to bring both a bull and a goat. Notice in verse 24, then if it's done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and drink offering according to the ordinance. And one male goat. So in Leviticus, it was just a bull. Now it's a bull with the grain and the wine and a goat. So God's saying, again, you're going to have abundance when you enter into the land and I'm going to expect that you give some of that back to me. But there's not, also, not only instructions for the congregation when they sinned unintentionally, but also the individual in verses 27 through 29. And if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. So this is, you know, someone's walking through life, he doesn't realize that God has a command against that, or maybe he's, um, he, he's not thinking straight, whatever the case is. He recognizes it later when someone bring, points it out to him, and as a result... Um, then he has to bring an offering to, to atone for his sins. So God gives a requirement. In Leviticus, you had a choice. You could either bring a goat or a lamb, according to Leviticus chapter 4. But here, notice that, that um, the, the responsibility is that they could only bring a goat. So most likely the, the lamb would have been cheaper, um, would have been easier on them. Verse 27, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat. In Leviticus, it was either a goat or a lamb, making it a little easier on the, the Israelite. But here, it can only be a goat. So God gives instructions for individuals and the congregation when they sin unintentionally. And then in verses 30 and 31, he gives instructions for those who sin high-handedly, instructions for high-handed sins. In other words, the, the kind of shake your fist in the face of God. I know that this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know that, the, that this defies your will, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. And so he gives instructions about premeditated, defiant sins against God. And what we should notice here is that God doesn't offer a means for this kind of rebel to be restored. He simply judges them. Verse 30 says, But the person who does anything defiantly or high-handedly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. So God doesn't say, uh, when a person sins high-handedly, deliberately, premeditatively, then here's the atonement. Instead, he says, they've already, they already know what they're doing against me. And, and being called part of the people of God is a great privilege. But with great privilege comes great responsibility. And God does not take lightly those who willfully reject His commands. The penalty for this Jew or a foreigner was that they would be completely cut off from the people of God. At the very least, it means to be cut off from the blessings and the presence of God, but at the most, it meant death. It meant that Israel had the responsibility and the authority to actually kill them. Well, what is this all about? Because this is serious stuff, right? Someone being cut off from the people of God, someone receiving this kind of judgment, what exactly is this? We want to know. What does sinning with a high hand look like? Well, I think, hopefully, we have an illustration in verses 32 through 36. 
Here, Moses gives us a story about a person who defied God's expectations. A story about a person who deliberately, with a premeditated uh, thought pattern, defied God's expectations. First, notice the penalty in verses 35 and 36. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses found out that God wanted this man to be judged, and so the congregation, as they were required to, took part in the judgment. But what was the big deal about this offense? Let's look at the offense here in verse 32. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath. And then if we skip down to verse 35, they stone him with stones. Okay, so gathering wood is enough to, to actually take a person's life? What, what was the big deal with gathering wood on the Sabbath? I mean, there's no law technically against it. So why such a harsh, a harsh penalty? Well, we need to keep two things in mind. There, there actually was a more general law. There wasn't a specific law that said no gathering wood on the Sabbath. But there was a law in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, that a man was not, or woman was not supposed to work on the Sabbath. This is the day of rest. It was Saturday was the day for rest. Secondly, there was another commandment that was from Exodus 35.3 that you cannot light a fire on Saturday, on the Sabbath. You cannot light a fire on the Sabbath. So, gathering wood for this man and for Moses, apparently, was kind of a gray area. Which may be why Moses, in verse 34, asks God what to do. He doesn't know what to do because there's no clear law against it. So, but, but, but I think God understood, and I think Moses and Aaron understood, and the congregation understood, and I think we understand that, that the man had an intention in gathering wood. Why else would you gather wood on the Sabbath day other than to light a fire? So, in other words, he had the intention to actually defy the law of God, didn't he? He actually planned to light the fire, which was prohibited. Maybe similar to uh, attempted murder. You know, the person doesn't technically commit the crime of murder, but they prepare to do so and they're judged as such, right? And so that's probably what's going on here. He doesn't technically violate the command unless you, unless you put it under working on the Sabbath, but, but he had the intention of, of doing so. It, this is premeditated rebellion against God. And so the big deal is that a person like this has sat under the Word of God. They, they know what God requires of them. They've taken all of that into account and then they throw it all out the window in order to engage in a pleasure that they desire. It's a sin of apostasy. Apostasy is, is willfully sinning after receiving the truth. Hebrews 10.26 says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Here, we have something very similar. This high-handed sin, there is no sacrifice. It doesn't say, well, if this guy repents. It, it's, it's like he's already set in his ways. He's decided. He's made his choice. So apostasy is willfully sinning after receiving the truth. It's not just about any kind of willful sin. 
Specifically, it's about abandoning the truth. That's what this man had done. It's not that, you know, because then we could say, well, are you saying that all of a Christian's sin is, is unwillful or unintentional sin, right? He didn't mean to do it. Then we would never have any culpability, right? We would, well, we just didn't really know. I mean, we have some sins that we're committing. We just didn't know until someone told us. So what I'm saying is not that any willful sin that you or I have committed is the sin of apostasy. Instead, this is actually, he's taking into account, again, he's taking into account what God has said and he's throwing that out for the sake of accomplishing what he wants. It's willfully ignoring all that God has said and actually abandoning the faith. It's abandoning the truth. Apostasy is committed by a person who has no excuse for their unbelief. They have been around people uh, who, who speak the truth. They've been around the Word. It's a person who's hung around a believing community for a period of time, but then they've turned their backs on the laws of God and the people of God. And with their abandonment of God, they have shown themselves to be unbelievers. They have shown themselves that their testimony of salvation was, was, a, was false, that it was smoke and mirrors. Those who reject the law of Moses were, were not like this man here. He was not one who just, you know what, here's one command I don't like, I'll, I'll accept everything else. The, those who reject the law of Moses reject the whole system. I don't find this as valuable. I don't want to have anything to do with coming to God through the sacrificial system through Mosaic laws. They abandoned the whole law of God and sought out some other means. And that's what verses 30 through 36 are all about. This man is not just committing some little tiny sin. It's actually an expression of what's in his heart that he has abandoned the whole law of God. And God says, because he's done this in this way, premeditated rebellion against me shows that he has abandoned the faith and he needs to be judged as such. In verses 37 through 40, God gives expectations for their remembrance. In order to remember God's commands, because it's not just about God spitting out facts and them hearing them one time and then forgetting them. God instead here establishes a kind of memorial. A memorial that was actually going to be on their clothing so that when they saw this part of the clothing, particularly on the robe, there was this uh, this tassel, this blue cord that came down from one of the tassels, it would remind them of their commitment to God. So notice in verse 38, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the, corner, on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and, they sh- and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And then notice its purpose in verse 39, It shall be a tassel for you in order to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So God's saying here, listen, put this little little blue cord on the end of your tassel on, on the bottom of your robe. And so that every time that you see that or you see that on someone else, you remember the commandments that I've given to you so that you will do them and follow and follow. And notice, and not play the harlot. It sounds like he still has hope for some of these people who are willing to repent. You older generation, who I've already promised, are not going to get the, the. You're not going to receive the promised land. You still have an opportunity to repent. 
And I want to see you obey my commandments, whether they did or not. Um, we, we don't know for sure in, in every case. Certainly there were a few. In verse 41, we see the purpose of God's expectations throughout this whole chapter. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. God has been working since the beginning of time to make a people for Himself. He's desired to have this relationship with them. We destroyed that at the fall when we, when we sinned against God. But God, ever since that time, has been working to restore us to this relationship so that, like in Zechariah 8, verse 8, they shall be My people and I shall be their God. I will walk with them in truth and righteousness. We see that kind of phrase that's repeated throughout Scripture and then again in the, the new heavens and the new earth. That God is their people and they, uh, God has them as their people and they have God as their God. <clears throat> and so here God is saying, listen, the purpose that I have all these expectations for you is because I want to come and live among you. But I can't live among a, a whole congregation of people who's living in apostasy, who has turned away from me. And so God's desire here is not to judge and to do harm to them, but to do good, isn't it? He wants them, he wants to enter into this relationship, and so he's clearing the way, tearing down all the barriers of their sin and resistance, so that he can walk with them, so that he can live among them. He wants them to be his people and for him to be their God couple of principles to consider from this passage. Number one, God has not given up on Israel. God has not given up on Israel. The ten spies convinced Israel that the people of Canaan were too powerful for them. That the land would devour people like them. And Israel didn't want to die in the wilderness or in Canaan, so they made their intention clear. We're going to elect new leaders who will take us back to Egypt so that we can die happy. And instead of God sending a plague to wipe them all out, as He had every right to do so, Moses interceded on behalf of the people and on behalf of God's glory. And God, in His mercy, continued to follow through on His promise. He didn't wipe them out start over with Moses. He did not cast them off or abandon them. Moses was right in chapter 14. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. There are two phrases in this text of chapter 15 that point to the fact that God has not given up on Israel. Notice verse 2 again. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land. So here, they're coming on the heels, same phrase is used in verse 18. They're coming on the heels of disobeying God in a, in, in a, in a huge way and God responds by saying, I'm not done with you. Because when you enter the land, it's going to happen. And then notice this other phrase that speaks to God's faithfulness to His people. Verse 14. If an alien sojourns with you, or you may be among, or who may be among you throughout your generations. Verse 15. Uh, the end of the verse. A perpetual statute throughout your generations. Verse 21. From the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generation. So, in other words, verse 23, 28, same idea. But, but in other words, God is saying, I'm not done with you. 
You, Israel, as a people, I have made a promise to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will follow through on it. That this generation of people may not last, but there's another generation that comes. It's going to follow on your heels, and I'm going to give them my promise. God is not done with Israel. He has not given up on them. And the same thing is true today. God still has a plan for Israel. Even though as a nation, in general, the leaders specifically do not acknowledge that Jesus is the Holy One of God. They do not acknowledge that He is the promised Messiah. Despite that, God has not given up on them. Revelation makes it clear that as a nation, they will repent of their sin. And they will be restored to a place of God's favor. That time is still to come. God is not done with Israel. And how similar is God with His dealings with us? That even at times when we doubt His goodness and care, He remains faithful to us. And why? Why would God be so faithful to us when we often are so faithless? The fact is that God desires to bless us. Doesn't He? For Israel, God did not cast off them as a people, as a nation, even though they distrusted Him. The chapter 15, while it may seem a little bit academic and not as exciting as some of the other narratives, it's a chapter about restoration. That they had just come from sinning against God by ignoring His promise that they would enter into the promised land. They, they didn't believe His promise. They ignored His will. They were faithless regarding the covenant. And here comes God saying, when you enter the land, you, there's going to come up a younger generation who will trust me. God desires to bless Israel. God desires to bless us. That's His desire for you and me as well. We may see His laws as restrictive and binding, but that's not how God sees them. And that's not how we ought to see them. We ought to see them like God does, which is as guardrails for us to avoid the destruction that awaits those who defy Him. Isn't that the most loving thing that God can do to us? To restrict us from damaging ourselves, from destroying ourselves? Isn't the most loving thing that God can do to us to give us more of His presence? God desires to bless us and As a result, we should want to please God and we should be confident that it is possible to please God. It is possible to please God. That's that's what Israel should have gotten from this chapter, from this, this part of the law that comes to them after their disobedience, after their rebellion. That it is actually possible to please God. We may look at the Bible and its hundreds of commands and expectations for us specifically and think, you know what, it's just too much. It's impossible for me to please God. But the truth is that God has given us all the tools that we need to please Him. He, he has not been enigmatic or, or um, hidden in His ways. He has spoken to us. He, he doesn't expect us to guess what He wants. He's given us His Spirit to help us, to guide us. He's given us examples of faithfulness in the Scriptures and in real life. He's given us His church. And our job is to learn from these means that God has used in order to teach His ways to us. Teach us what is pleasing to Him and how to please Him. See, if we desire to 
enjoy God's presence and blessing. We must live according to His expectation, and God had, has made it possible for us to do so. Finally, the pathway to pleasing God and enjoying life is obedience. It sounds so simple. It's something that we teach our kids here at the church, kids at home, that obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. There, there's nothing better uh, um, than giving ourselves fully to God. You know, we can never prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. It seems so simple, right? That it's obedience. The pathway to pleasing God and enjoying life is obedience, but it's so hard to do. I found uh, Ian DeGuede's commentary in this chapter to be helpful. He suggests that instinctively and sinfully we think that bondage comes from listening to God and following His commands and fulfilling His expectations. It feels kind of uh, distressing and crushing on us. And yet he goes on to say that bondage really comes not from trusting God and listening to God, but from unbelief and rebellion. The people of Israel are an example of this, aren't they? they? Those who rebelled against God actually imprisoned themselves to the worst kinds of troubles that they could experience. And they died in the wilderness as a direct consequence of their sin. But those who obeyed God in Israel also serve as a good example for us. That, that they submitted themselves, think of it this way, they enslaved themselves to the rules of God. And yet, who were the freest of them? It wasn't those who tried to do it their own way. It was those who submitted themselves to God. They were the ones who enjoyed God's blessing and presence and died of old age. How much are we like Israel at times? Do we not many times think that we have a better way than God? Do we not think that we know what will bring us the greatest happiness? And it will be found not in obeying God's command. That's too restrictive but actually in disobeying God's commands, in living lives our own ways. We find pleasure in lots of other things in this world except in what God commands. And yet, as we sang earlier today, the righteous one is the one who loves the law, the laws of God. They see the laws of God as preserving and helpful and given from a loving God. Read Psalm 119 sometimes and read sometime and, and read how the author there says that he loves the law of God. It's his delight to think about it and to obey it. This is the truth we need to embrace, that God's laws for us are good. We don't have the same laws as Israel had. We are a different people group. But, but God has laws for us that are laid out for us in the Scriptures. And we ought to learn from Israel in that even when we don't understand or we don't like it or when we think there's a better way, God's ways are always best. We must obey Him. Those who desire to enjoy God's presence and blessing must live according to His expectations. Let's pray. I'm thankful for this passage of Scripture. We do uh, like studying the narratives and, and thinking about some of the um, amazing stories that took place in the Old Testament and, and some of the, 
the amazing displays of disobedience and the amazing displays of, of courage, but, but this passage is helpful for us to, to get our bearings again as to what is most important, that you, for Israel, still had a promise for them that they would receive the land, that you had not given up on them despite their rebellion, and uh, that the next generation was going to come along and, and be free because they would obey you and trust you. And, um, Lord, you have this same kind of expectation for us. How quick are we to, to turn away from you and, and look to other means to find joy and happiness and, and to turn away from your laws because they feel too restrictive or because we can't do as much as our unsaved friends. Lord, how wrong we have been in thinking that way. Forgive us for that and bring us back to a place of restoration. Forgive us um, for defying you. Help us not to abandon the faith, but to be faithful to you and recognize the truth of your word and the goodness of your commands. May this week be a time in which we, we seek to obey you, seek to understand what you desire of us, and to be pleasing to you and enjoy your presence. We pray in Jesus' name.